The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. The House Show. For over 38 weeks, the revolutionary force in retro sports entertainment podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, the Retro Network and the House Show proudly present to you this spooktacular time. <laughs> Let's welcome the trio's tag team champions of the world. The Master Library, Kevin Straight Out of Hellions. Sweet Maddie, Trick or Treats. And the educator of exorcisms. Collectively known as the Haunted House Show. Enter at your own risk. Halloween Havoc 1999. On today's card, for the WCW Cruiserweight Championship, we see the Disco Inferno take on Lash LaRue. For the WCW World Tag Team Championship in a street fight, we see the Filthy Animals take on the First Family, take on Harlem Heat. In a singles match, Eddie Guerrero takes on Perry Saturn. Berlin then takes on Brad Armstrong. In a singles match for the WCW World Television Champion, Rick Steiner takes on Chris Benoit. In a singles match, Bret Hart battles the total package. Yeah, that's right, the total package. In a singles match for the WCW World Heavyweight Championship, Hulk Hogan battles Sting. Then, in a singles match for the WCW United States Championship, Goldberg takes on Sid Vicious. In a strap match, we see Diamond Dallas Page take on the man that loves spanking, Ric Flair. And in a bonus WCW World Heavyweight title match, we see Goldberg battle Sting. Welcome everyone to another edition of the Haunted House Show. It is me as always, Mr. Maddie Treats, and I am joined by my trio's tag team partners to my left. The Educator of Exorcisms. Educator, this is the penultimate episode of the Halloween Havoc series. Are you excited? Oh, baby. Absolutely. Looking forward to this show as we are tiptoeing to the end of WCW's run. Uh, lots of new faces showing up on this particular show here. Uh, at least faces that haven't been on TV for a while or haven't been on a, on a pay-per-view for WCW in a while. Uh, looking forward to your thoughts on this particular show with the idea of the uh, the new powers, the new writers, so to speak, coming in from up north and, and leaving their fingerprint all over this particular card and um, the shenanigans of the craziness that follows up in the few weeks afterwards. Yeah, what, have, uh, what an interesting show this is. There's many references to the writers and powers that be... Probably too many references, I would say. Uh, but anyways, uh, who's that over there? Oh, that's the Masked Library, Kevin Allians. Kevin, how are you? I'm doing well. You know, educators said that uh, the powers that be there are leaving their fingerprint on, I, on everything tonight. I, I'd say it's another 
bodily fluid stain they leave all over everything tonight. They dropped a toozy, huh? Yeah. It's a very interesting uh, angle you got there, Kevin. So I can't say I'm wrong. No, yeah, this this show was something. I remember, I don't know if I watched it live or not. I remember certain things from it. Same here. Uh, I remember the Goldberg match with Sid and how that all played out. Um, I I drew a blank completely on the Hogan-Sting interaction and then not understanding why Hogan had such a big deal about it seven, eight months later when that interaction happened with Jeff Jarrett at a future pay-per-view and the same idea played across. I, I drew a blank on that. I completely forgot about the feud between DDP and Flair and the interaction with Kimberly and all that stuff and the events that led up to that. So interesting stuff, fun stuff, uh, some not-so-good stuff, craziness and shenanigans all over the place as well. Uh, we're really getting a, a big, a very, very big difference between – 97 and 98 and the shows that were presented versus this, you know, sports entertainment uh, that vibe that we get from the powers that be. Well, I mean, let's address the New Yorker and the muscle shirt girl in the room here. It's Vince Russo hired away from WWE, taken over WCW here and given full control. Did he have good ideas in WWE that helped the attitude air and help them be successful. Absolutely. He also had people above him. that were cherry picking certain ideas, fine tuning them, throwing some away. Doesn't have an editor here. And it shows there's a lot of stuff on here. that I'm like, ah, geez, that's a good idea, but it's not finished yet. You know, a, a hunk of marble can become a statue here. The Uncle Marble is not beautiful. The statue will be, but you got to have someone that can get you in between there for the finished product. Russo doesn't have a finished product here. There's a lot of good ideas, but poor execution of them. No. Yeah, absolutely. I thought there was this, this show is jarring. This might be the most jarring year to year show because everyone's role is different. There's, there's the, the faces last year, the heels this year and vice versa. Uh, it just felt so bad. If you you watch that intro video that happens, which you know comes right up at the top, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> like, there's so much thrown at you in this intro video. Um, it's it's just crazy. So, do you guys want to get right into it? Oh, baby, let's do it, man. Let's get right into our event. We are once again at the MGM Grand Garden Arena. The date, October 24th, 1999. They say it's a sold-out show, but there's like 3,000 less people than there were from the previous two years. Um, Can you say it's a sold-out show if you don't make seats available to the public to sell? Yeah, they're obviously curtaining off, quarantining areas of space. I, I mean, I don't remember the... I remember the pumpkin being always that big. But was there always the demon in the background shaking the pumpkin back and forth the for the last few episodes? Thing, I, uh, yeah, I think that's fairly new. Oh, okay. Because uh, I, I don't remember the pumpkin moving around or having the hands that were shaking it back and forth. So I don't know if there was just a bigger set that they curtained off. Because you could tell they had the fake like stars in the background by the entranceway. And that whole area is now completely curtained off. So I'm assuming that's a, probably a big chunk of the seats where... Uh, those are blocked off and why we have a lower 
supposedly lower uh, attendance count here. I mean, and and showing my ignorance here for sports and stadiums. If you take a stadium and set it up for basketball, you can fit more people than if you set it up for football. Both could be sold out crowds. So it depends on how it's set up. So if they just set it up from the beginning to have less seats, then technically it's still a sold out crowd. So we could technically rent Madison Square Garden. Mm -hmm. Us three. We ponied Mm -hmm. up the money. And then sell ten tickets, but we only then we sold out. but we only yeah. put ten seats on. I mean, we can get around that. It's mm-hmm. it's just it's all about the configuration. Let's figure that out then. Let's configure that out. Boom, <laughs> nailed it. So uh, so we are greeted with Tony Schiavone and Bobby the Brain Heenan on the call. This is our first two man booth, and we get right into it with match number one on the card. It is for the cruiserweight championship. It is the Disco Inferno taking on Lash LaRue. Uh, what you guys think of this one? I know Disco has been growing on you guys. Another another good performance? Uh, as best as it's going to be on his end. Uh, we, we had a, a cruiserweight title match last year. Uh, wasn't so successful for Disco. Uh, a couple of years back, he's television champion on the show. So... Uh, Interesting match. We got Lash LaRue making a, a Halloween Havoc debut here. Interesting character. He'd eventually go on to be a part of the Misfits in Action uh, group that would be led by Hugh Morris and have a few other you know, mid-card talent in there all interacting together and getting more quality TV time. To me, uh, this, this was not a, a really good match. It just very it didn't have a lot of storytelling whatsoever. It was just a matter of one move, two move, pinfall attempt, one bump, two bump, another pinfall. There was no, it was just continuous back and forth and back and forth. Not a lot of storytelling to get the crowd really invested and involved. Uh, totally agree. See the point there. Um, and and it's funny because I was commenting beforehand that there was an earlier match in Halloween Havoc series where Disco seemed to be very much worried about okay, I was told to do this and then I was told to do this and then I was told to do this and I can't slow down and just con- and just enjoy the match and be in the moment. And you can see reversal because Disco has learned how to do that, but Lash obviously hasn't. And I think one of the things that becomes so enjoyable about Disco is he's clearly doing his best when he goes out there. Is he the greatest wrestler ever? No. But I think he is at his personal best and trying and it shows effort goes a long way someone coasting you can get ticked off about you can get mad but him putting in the effort even if he only means he's a c and b student he's doing his best and that counts for something uh so before i have you break down the match educator i have a very i have a question that's burning in my brain okay all right what do you got i need you guys to rank these three Okay, you ready? Mm-hmm. Disco Inferno, Kevin Owens, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Who has the best stunner? No doubt, Austin. It's Austin, yeah. Who's number two? Yeah. Disco or KO? See, I... I don't remember the Disco Inferno having a stunner as a finish. And I don't That's... remember it being referred to um, as the last dance. I thought it was called the chart buster. 
Kevin, do you remember it being no, referred to? No, not. I mean, I'm, I, 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 I remember. No, way. I remember him using it, um, especially when he was in the the Mama Luke's and leading that the New York crew. But I don't remember it being referred to as the Last Dance. I thought it was the Chart Buster. Maybe he changed the name of it down the road, being referred to as the Last Dance here. Um, yeah. So, yeah, without a doubt, Austin, best nominee. All right. Why don't we go ahead and break this one down for you? Kevin Hellions. I mean, The Educator. Or is it Hellions? Not so much. We start with the match with Disco Inferno hitting a clothesline on the Lash LaRue and gets LaRue into the corner and starts stomping him down as we start the match. Uh, interaction back and forth involves Disco eventually doing an eye poke to Lash LaRue and then hitting a DDT. Lash LaRue eventually covers and Disco is running the ropes. Lash LaRue hits a leapfrog, then a drop kick, and then is able to do a scoop slam onto the Disco Inferno, goes for a pinfall attempt, only gets a two count from referee Nick Patrick. We see Lash LaRue catching Disco Inferno for a, a power slam after he's running off of the ropes and goes for another pinfall attempt, only for a two. We see Lash LaRue tossing Disco Inferno through the ropes to the floor. Lash LaRue rams Disco Inferno's head into the ring steps a couple of times. Eventually, the Ben end up back into the ring. Disco Inferno counters a second uh, running attempt uh, into the uh, post uh, outside of the ring. Uh, Disco uh, covers a uh, an attempt for a run into the post, and Lash Larue ends up getting Irish whipped into the post uh, shoulder first instead. We see Lash Larue in the ring. Uh, eventually recovering, and he botches a top rope, jumping, leaping Huna Karana onto Disco Inferno. Basically, it looked like Lash LaRue almost powerbombed himself, the way he kind of landed on high on his shoulders. But Disco does roll through and kind of sell it as if it connected. Lash LaRue gets a two-count for that. We see Lash LaRue working a, a chin lock and a rest hold. Disco Inferno does use a few elbows to eventually escape. Disco Inferno does an Irish whip and a clothesline onto Lash LaRue for another two count. Lash LaRue avoids being thrown over the top rope as he does a skin the cat to bring himself back in. But then as he brings himself back in, Disco Inferno eventually hits a swinging neck breaker onto Lash LaRue. We get another two count from referee Nick Patrick. Disco Inferno is successful with an Irish whip into the corner. Uh, as Lash LaRue hits chest first, he stumbles back. Disco hits him with a side Russian leg sweep. Disco Inferno then scoops up Lash LaRue and does his uh, pile driver that we saw from last year's show. We get a very long two count from referee Nick Patrick. Uh, Lash LaRue eventually battles back and does recover and hits a blue thunder bomb, sit out power bomb onto Disco Inferno for a two count. Uh, Disco Inferno hits an inverted atomic drop. And then eventually hits the last dance stunner on to Lash LaRue for the one, two, three victory. Post-match, we see Disco Inferno try to show a sign of respect to Lash LaRue. Kind of extends his hand out for a handshake as LaRue is trying to regain his bearings and get back up off of the canvas. Lash LaRue does shake his hand, but then quickly stomps Disco Inferno in the gut, picks him up for a fireman's carry, and then twists around into his uh, Michinoku-like driver and uh, teases that he's going to take the belt and out of frustration but ends up just dropping the belt onto Disco Inferno. The winner of the match by pinfall with the last dance stunner is 
the Disco Inferno. Crazy to see Disco as the veteran here. Very obviously calling the match. Um, in phenomenal shape, too. Like, not that he was, you know, fat or anything beforehand, but in even better shape than he was just last year for the show. Uh, Lash LaRue got to be very clearly a power plant product here. He just the look, the wrestling style that he has, the things he's emphasizing, the things he clearly doesn't know yet. Got to be power plant. Has to be. I don't think he like, you know, got signed from the indies or anything as far as I can tell. It's it, and it's also like I complained about disco before having, you know, he's got to always stop to dance. Alex Wright always having to stop to dance. I wonder if we'll see him tonight. And then Lash LaRue does the same thing and has to stop and do his little poses and, and show that his sideburns are, are shaved to form an L because, you know, that's his name, Lash LaRue. It's little things like that that's not getting over with the audience. It's just taking out of the match. And then the the newer talent here is so worried about getting these little winks and nods and looks to the camera that they then forget, oh, I have to wrestle a match too. <laughs> Like, I think that's why something is, is missing from the flow of the matches here. And as much as I want to crap on Lash for it, he sold the hell out of that stunner. For a, for a rookie new guy, he sold the hell out of it. That looked fantastic. A uh, good attack at then. I was actually surprised by it. And it uh, looks like so were the camera people because they completely missed it at first. And then I, I had to have Bobby Brain tell me what happened when he was doing the recap after. I'm like, oh, that's what happened there when the camera wasn't focusing on it. A lot of there, there were a few moments of uh, camera people not knowing what was going on tonight. Uh, Lash LaRue was a uh, power plant trainee. So he's also a cartoonist now. Is he? Yeah. You know, I, I seem I feel like I remember that he was drawing some when he was in WCW, maybe around this time, he would draw stuff for PWI. Mm-hmm. And the WCW magazine. Okay. Why don't we move on to the group they call Revolution, which is, of course, Dean Malenko, Chris Benoit, Perry Saturn, and Shane Douglas, of course. Uh, Shane Douglas, who's nowhere to be seen nowhere at to all be seen tonight. tonight, but referenced many, many times on the show. Uh, Shane, Shane Douglas is the poochie of Revolution tonight. The poochie of Revolution. Poochie. When he's not on camera, he's referenced. Had to go back to his home planet. I always get poochie in, so... I feel like that's like the fifth Poochie reference we've got on the show. <laughs> Always. I don't know. And then we have Mike Tanay interviewing Harlem Heat. And that brings us to match number two on the night, which is for the tag titles. And boy, what a match this was. Holy cow. So the vacant tag titles, the vacant tag titles. Yes. The supposedly vacant tag titles, but you wouldn't know they're vacant based on, you know, the entrance of the match. Yes. I don't know. So you have Hugh it. Morris. Coming down with Brian Knobs and Jimmy Hart in classic tag team. What <laughs> tag team? Uh, then you got Harlem Heat, and then you have Conan and Kidman, the uh, represent the filthy animals. And is this what? No, is this no holds barred? Is a street fight? What is this match? Uh, street fight pinfalls anywhere. Yeah, falls count anywhere. Street fight. They're making up for the fact that supposedly on the previous Monday, Conan and uh, Ray Mysterio, and they show clips of it, won the tag team titles uh, and pinned one of the members of Harlem Heat in the match. Uh, but then Ray Mysterio somehow got injured, uh, had a knee injury, an ankle injury, or something like that. So he wasn't actively able to compete. So 
what the explanation was is that the powers that be have decided to strip the filthy animals of the tag team titles. You wouldn't know that as they walked to the ring wearing the tag team championships and decided to hold the titles up. And the winner of this three-way street fight, Spalls Count Anywhere, supposedly in the building, uh, was going to be... Um, you know, the new, the, the, the tag team champions or the recognized tag team champions. Um, you guys kind of poop all over the humorous Brian knobs, uh, combo here, but that is actually, it's a callback with Jimmy Hart and his time in Memphis. They're being referred to as the first family. That was like a huge faction that he actually was a part of way back in the day, pre WWF run, um, 83, 84, 85 Memphis. Um, and there was a pretty good sized faction that he was one of the managers of. When they said Jimmy Hart's first family, I I forgot who was in this match, and I uh, I really and truly hoped it was Ming and Barbarian again. So, but maybe they had a new gimmick. We're gonna see that team again. Um, you know, Filthy Animals does come out with the tag titles, but it's not a matter of confusion. It's a matter of keeping up our Halloween Havoc tradition of someone walking out with a title that they do not actually. Half, yeah, and I wasn't poo pooing over the tag team. I was just saying, like, it was an odd tag team. I was not expecting, you know, them to come out. The Hugh Boys, Hugh Knobs, <laughs> Hugh, huge knobs, huge knobs. <laughs> there we go. All right, why don't you go ahead and break this one down? Actually, is Kevin Hellion's going to break down the huge knobs match? No, I, I wouldn't put him through this. Um. <laughs> It, it's shenanigans at the start. It's shenanigans for the entire match. Let's be honest. We see chair shots and garbage cans in the ring with knobs and Hugh Morris. Um, all six guys are fighting all over the place on the floor outside near the aisleway in the crowd. At one point, we see Brian knobs hit Hugh Morris with a trash can as Hugh Morris is holding Booker T's arms and he ends up ducking out of the way and knobs takes out Hugh Morris couple of moments later, Hugh Morris has recovered from that trash can shot to the head and hits a stiff clothesline to Kidman, goes for a two count only or goes for a pinfall only gets a two count. At one point, we see Jimmy Hart in the ring and he's distracting Booker T uh, to try to help his guys, you know, get a little bit of recovery time in. So Booker T gets frustrated. He ends up chasing Jimmy Hart out of the ring uh, and they start running up the entrance towards the big pumpkin entrance. And Brian Knobs ends up following uh, Booker T with a trash can in tow and smacks that trash can over Booker T's head. Eventually, Stevie Ray works his way down as well. And now Booker T and Stevie Ray are essentially double teaming Brian Knobs on the Halloween Havoc set. And they end up doing a double Irish whip of Brian Knobs through one of the stand up casket coffins. And he just basically obliterates right through uh, that particular gimmick there. We see Hugh Morris with a, a press slam onto Kidman as there was a chair brought in the ring and he sets up the chair to sit upright in the ring. He picks up Kidman like he's going to do a press slam but ends up kind of dropping him kind of chest first, uh, sternum first over the, che- uh, the, over the back of the chair. The camera does cut backstage where Booker T accidentally Harlem sidekicks Stevie Ray uh, into a bunch of boxes that were set up to create a wall as Brian Knobs had moved out of the way to avoid the kick. 
Back into the ring, we see Hugh Morris setting up a table in the middle of the ring, and he puts Kidman, uh, I'm sorry, he puts Conan onto the table, and he is able to hit his No Laughing Matter moonsault through the table. It's a pretty good table spot, uh, hit him squarely uh, through. Backstage, we now get cut to the other referee and the double teaming of Harlem Heat, where Stevie Ray finds a mannequin that it's kind of wrapped up to look like a mummy. He basically picks up the mannequin. Brian Knobs has been laid out on the floor and Booker or Stevie Ray picks up this mannequin and basically kind of power slams or like Mark Henry world strongest slams this mannequin down on top of Brian Knobs. And then Stevie Ray kind of rolls out of the frame and then Booker T follows up and ends up pinning Brian Knobs. So this is all going on backstage and we have a referee that calls backstage for the end of the match but there's still action going on in the ring and the other referee has no idea what's going on backstage. So in the ring, we hear in the background that a spot must have happened and we hear that Kidman has made a, also a pinfall attempt on Hugh Morris as we start to see Harlem Heat walking back to ringside with the referee in tow and the referee holding up one of Harlem Heat's hands showing that there's a victory. And the crowd's going nuts because they got to visually see the pinfall where Kidman had pinned Hugh Morris. But then when Harlem Heat gets to ringside and now the two referees are conversing back and forth, uh, we see Booker T go and grab the tag titles. And the crowd's kind of like poo-pooing on the moment here because they may not have seen what was going on backstage. And eventually the ring announcer does announce that that there was a pinfall, in fact, that happened backstage prior to the pinfall that happened in the ring. So the winners and now 10-time tag team champions are Harlem Heat. Post-match, we see Conan looking very visibly hurt, and trainers come down and start working on him, and it appears that he has some sort of right shoulder injury as trainers are like barely touching his upper trap uh, and took and kind of touching an area that looks to be like a weird bump. It looks like it may be a shoulder separation or some, some kind of shoulder injury. But we'll eventually see Conan make a recovery later on in the night. Oh, good. That's worried, Bob. Uh, I have never seen Jimmy Hart be as active or go for such a dangerous spot as he does in this match. I was shocked to see him get involved in this at all. And and what he did, I mean, and Jimmy Hart, like, because we've seen him since the 80s and all, he's just always looked the same age, and I don't quite know how. Uh, I, I was impressed with him. Otherwise, there's not a chance that anyone is calling this match. Not a chance. I think it was just like, all right, guys, go out there, and uh, I don't know, we'll tell you when to go for a finish. Fill up seven or eight minutes worth of time and just, we're just brawl. And do yeah. spots. That's all that it was. Beat the hell out of each other. We'll tell you when to go for finish. Or will we? Because we got the finish in the back and the finish up front. Which could have been an interesting angle if the camera picked up the finish happening in the ring. Right. Instead, you got Harlem Heat coming back out and the bell goes off in the ring. And you can kind of see it in the background or whatever. And you're like, I, I think a pinfall happened in the ring. So what? Like... Both teams went out there being told that they were going to win because to just do the spot of no, there's a pinfall in the back and there's one out here too. It's fine. It's fine. Don't worry about it. That's that's stupid. That makes no sense. 
So clearly both teams were told to go for the pin. What? Like you were challenging them to see who goes for it first? I, I just, I don't understand what's happening. You know, what the reason is for this. Whoever, I mean, we know who the powers that be, but whoever set up this match, this is already terrible. And, and we got a, a few more here. Also, very disappointed. If you're going to hit someone with a mummy at Halloween Havoc, how did no one call it the Yeti? <laughs> no one. Tony and Bobby sitting right there. I thought that was a the, a call callback, too. To, I, it's got to be. You know, but... It's not random mummies hanging out backstage. <laughs> Judy Bagwell, Yeti, that's about it. It's kind of sad, unfortunately, that this ends up being Harlem Heat's 10th tag team title win. You know, I mean, it's obviously it's a big one in their career. I don't know what's more depressing, this being Harlem Heat's 10th title win or what Flair's 16th world title one win was when Nash just handed him the belt. No. Speaking of Flair, Ric Flair and David Flair arrived to the arena, crowbar in hand, walking very... Devin Storm? What's that? Devin Storm? Devin Storm. Yeah. Oh, my God. How do you not reel up treats? What are you talking about? Oh my god, David Flair tagged up with Devin Storm, who was under the gimmick name Crowbar. I don't watch bad wrestling, guys. Oh, no. We gotta, sure? we gotta finish this sure? up. I gotta watch Raw later tonight. Yeah. <laughs> this is your odds homework, bad wrestling, Halloween Havoc 99. <laughs> um, and then DDP and Kimberly go to the ring. Um... Yeah, Kimberly looked really um, good here. Mm-hmm. Absolutely gorgeous. Uh, Flair likes to spank it. I found that out during this. All right, yep. so can we talk about the Flair DDP uh, angle here? This was very enjoyable. We're gonna Absolutely. we're gonna get to it later. the The best thing on this show, spoiler alert, in my opinion, is the Ric Flair promo. Where he was like, and then she came out like, woo, and woo, and woo, and woo. <laughs> and then I spanked it, and I spanked it, and woo. And she was like, woo, nature boy. And I'm like, woo, woo. It's so freaking dives, good. baby. It is great. I love every second of it. So. You okay, Kevin? I wish we could have recorded you doing that. I, I did audio, uh, audibly. Yeah. For, for your Patreon. Uh, it's a spoiler. We'll get to that in a little bit. But we have Goldberg then. So there's a lot going on in between these matches. So Flair and David Flair show up with Devin Storm. Um, DDP and Kimberly go to the ring. Flair likes to spank Kimberly. Uh, Goldberg is beating up Sid. And then Mike Tanay interviews Eddie Guerrero. And then we get Perry Saturn versus Eddie Guerrero. <laughs> Now, it's a packed show. It, yeah. This is at the point, too, where I'm just like, what? How? It's only been 20 minutes into the, <laughs> the pay per view. Like, crazy. How is that possible? Talk about Crash TV. Right. Jeez Louise. It, it is very, yeah. It's like when you have an awful day at work and you look at your watch or phone or the clock and you're like, oh, dear God, it's only been 20 minutes. Yeah. No, yeah, I'm ready to go home. Absolutely. It's only 11.45 and I came in at 11. <laughs> um,. <laughs> So, I, I don't want to sound like a jerk, guys. Too late. Um, so, match number three, Eddie Guerrero versus Perry Saturn. I had to look up in this match when, like, when Perry Saturn died. 
because I could have sworn he died. He's not dead. I, I not, know he he's not. He's had he's had a lot of health issues though, right? With CT, he stuff. got shot in the head he and kept going, and then he became a meth addict. And, yeah, yeah. It's crazy to me. I literally looked it up. I'm like, oh, he. How long ago did he die? I'm thinking to myself. His partner died, John Cronus. From Cronus, ECW. yeah. Considering the life Saturn has had, it's understandable that you think he doesn't he seem like someone that should have died young no offense like i'm not trying to be a jerk no, about but, it but like well, if, being there's just there's some people when you look at it like keith richards for for the rolling stones you think should have died at an early age just because of the way they lived yeah you know what i mean so so what did you guys think of the match uh for what it was uh, it, it was a good back and forth match between the two, showing how capable uh, they are as singles guys. Uh, unfortunately, the fans were not at all too impressed. There were definite audible boring chants throughout the match. And really, it was more this match was just a backdrop to further another storyline uh, with Flair uh, as opposed to you know settling a rivalry between the filthy animals and the uh, the revolution. I mean, also, we're looking at it through 2020 eyes here when the actual late Eddie Guerrero, uh, world champion, huge star when he moved over, Saturn had him up. But in this era, WCW, I'd say they were considered on equal footing, though. So it's kind of weird to see Saturn have so much of this match compared to Eddie Guerrero, but he wasn't Eddie Guerrero in their minds. Yeah, I thought, too, it was interesting to see. So they go to WWF, WWE. When do they, when do, like, what month do they go over? January, February. January of 2000. Yeah. Yeah, they show up on a In, like, two months, that. It's it's about two and a half, three months. There's the NWO sold out pay-per-view happens in January of 2000. Benoit wins the title hands the title right back over. I don't think literally backstage that night, but it was like within the next day or two and not the immediate night on raw, but like the, like eight days later, they all show up. But it's just crazy to think like, as I'm watching this, I'm like, Oh, they're kind of getting like, they're, they're featured quite a bit. It, it wasn't like they weren't getting TV time. They, they obviously weren't happy in the company. It was a matter of, there's legitimate stuff going on between Benoit and Kevin Sullivan, obviously involving Nancy uh, and the fact that Benoit and Nancy are a legit item and that Sullivan and Nancy had split. And in this time, Kevin Sullivan had actually risen backstage and had more power. And I believe was, uh, involved very much in a lot of the booking. I know that the writers that just came on board were involved with things as well, but Kevin Sullivan still had a lot of backstage clout and power in terms of being a backstage agent. And a lot of the guys felt that they just were not going to be used appropriately. And, um, they sought other avenues, uh, even though the four that left ended up leaving that became the radicals, Shane Douglas and Conan at the time were also looking to try to get out and they were not successful. There was not interest on WWE's end for both. Yeah. This, like you said earlier, this match is a vehicle for flair 
um, as Flair forces a kiss on Tori Wilson. This won't be the last time we see Flair force a kiss force, on a woman. Forcing himself on a woman tonight. <laughs> no, no, no. Not at all. Yeah. So uh, why don't you go ahead and break this one down for us? <gasps> Woo! It's my Ric Flair. All right. So we see the start of the match. Eddie charges towards Perry Saturn with a drop kick, and Saturn kind of sidesteps that drop kick. And eventually, uh, Perry Saturn sends Eddie Guerrero over the top rope to the floor. Uh, we see that Eddie uh, eventually uh, does a baseball slide when he gets back into the ring to avoid a maneuver between Saturn's legs. And then he does a low drop kick to the leg of Saturn. And then he ends up tossing Saturn out to the floor. We see Eddie Guerrero do an Irish whip to Saturn into the guardrail. We see Eddie pulling the side or uh, the stairway uh, steps away from the ring. And he tries to ram Saturn's head into it, but Saturn blocks it and ends up press slamming Eddie Guerrero up straight up into the air. And it looked like the spot was intended to kind of drop Eddie straight down. So it would look like his face and his chest would land on top of the steps. But it looks like Saturn was a little bit too far away. So really, Eddie almost had to like slap his hands down across the uh, the stairs and it was kind of close to where his head position was, so it really looked like it could have been a very awkward bump. Uh, the the announcer sold it that like you know Eddie may have just broken his wrist or so on doing that particular bump. Um, back in the ring, eventually we see Pat, uh, Saturn hit a pop up power bomb, and then he kind of rolls through and does a bridge onto Eddie Guerrero. He gets a two count uh, from referee Mickey J. Um, Saturn does a wrist lock with a unique, uh, kind of like a, a tip over takedown. And then he kind of works on a, uh, an arm bar on Eddie Guerrero. We see Saturn throw Eddie into the ropes and picks him up and he does a little flapjack to kind of have him belly flop down onto the mat onto Eddie Guerrero. Uh, and then he's working an arm bar, uh, on the canvas itself to continue to work on Guerrero's wrists that were supposedly injured from that spot out on the floor. We see Saturn hitting a wrist lock and a combined head scissors uh, takedown onto Eddie. Eventually, Eddie does fight back and hits a drop kick on a, a seated Perry Saturn in the ring. Saturn does recover and eventually hits a release T-bone su suplex onto Eddie Guerrero for a two count. Saturn continues to work on the knee and the ankle of Eddie Guerrero now. He's dropping it over the bottom rope, and he basically drops his butt and his hips down to uh, create more force to work on the ligaments in the knee and the ankle. We see at one point Eddie hits an eye poke uh, to break up a leg bar that uh, Perry Saturn was working on. And we see Eddie hitting an awesome-looking Saito side suplex on the Perry Saturn for a two-count. We see Saturn hitting basically a fall away slam uh, to break a wrist lock that Eddie Guerrero was working on. He ends up doing a springboard second rope moonsault onto Eddie for a two count. That wasn't successful, so he goes and attempts to do a second springboard moonsault from the second rope, but Eddie ends up lifting up his knees and Saturn crashes and burns. We see Eddie Guerrero hitting a brain buster suplex onto Perry Saturn. He climbs up to the top rope and hits what would have looked like an amazing frog splash. But Perry Saturn ends up rolling out of the way. Eddie hits a drop kick as Saturn tries to do a leaping springboard maneuver off of the second rope. Saturn sets up Eddie on the uh, turnbuckle 
as if he's going to do a belly to back superplex, but Eddie ends up basically kicking down, uh, getting kicked down as he tries to stand up. And then Saturn ends up crotching Eddie Guerrero on that rope. We see Saturn basically try to set up for what looks like a, uh, uh, like a second rope razor's edge or outsider's edge, but uh, Eddie is able to escape. So now Saturn is able to then rehook Eddie up to back to the, to the top rope. And he hits this like overhead Northern light suplex, more like a fall away back body drop slam onto Eddie Guerrero. Um, he follows up continuing with uh, working on Eddie's arm and shoulder. Eventually Eddie is able to escape. And uh, sets Saturn up for the top rope. And uh, Eddie himself does a top rope superplex. And as both men are laying down in the ring, now we see Ric Flair making an entrance from the big pumpkin, running down with a crowbar in his hand, not Devin Storm, a real actual metal crowbar. And he ends up smashing Eddie Guerrero in the wrist with a crowbar after he stomps on Eddie. So the referee calls for a disqualification. So... Reason why Flair's being involved in the match is there was apparently history between Eddie and Flair where Eddie had stolen Ric Flair's gold Rolex watch. During Eddie's entrance, he had worn that Rolex watch to the ring and he took it off and he handed it to Bobby Heenan on commentary and asked Bobby Heenan to uh, take care of it and watch it for him. So Flair comes down, beats up Eddie Guerrero with the crowbar and then we see Billy Kidman uh, comes tr- to ringside, tries to do a run-in uh, to save Eddie, but Flair is able to best him with the crowbar as well. Tori Wilson, who was a part of the Filthy Animal Stable, had also followed Flair or followed Kidman to ringside. She's inside of the ring, and when Ric Flair turns and sees her, he you know walks over to her and forces a big kiss on to Tori Wilson who afterwards sells it like she liked it a lot. She's smiling a lot. So Flair's getting all crazy with his gyrations and blah, blah, blah. And he ends up leaving ringside, heading back to the locker room, and then realizes, oh, crap, the whole point of my run was to go get his my watch back. So all of a sudden, after Flair leaves, all of a sudden he runs back down to ringside, goes over to Bobby Heaton. Bobby Heaton hands him his watch. He puts his watch back on, and he leaves. Your winner by disqualification due to the outside interference is, I guess, technically Eddie Guerrero. Yeah. Like, the, the match was really a showcase for Saturn. Eddie gets in enough that it doesn't look like a squash or anything, but this match is all Saturn. And like we're talking, we're a couple months away from the four of them leaving. And honestly, some stuff with uh, one of their matches, one of the four matches later on in the night. I wonder if they were kind of mentally checked out already. If Eddie's like, listen, here's here's what's going to happen at the end. Flair's going to come out. We're going to do this spot. Um, I'd rather kind of have an easy night like Saturn, do whatever you want i'll get in a couple moves but it's all you and then you know we'll do this scene and head out like it's just it's so i'd say for who's in this match it's shockingly one-sided in saturn's favor but saturn doing really well he was good in this match it was enjoyable i forgot that you know he could be this good but it feels like a what could have been match you mean for saturn no, no, like for both of them, I feel like if they both really wanted to, they could have put on a great match. But I feel 
it seemed like Eddie at least, if not maybe both of them were like, I just don't want to be here anymore. So I'm I'm putting in minimal effort here tonight. Yeah, I feel like if they've already made their minds up that they're leaving, they're not going to put their body on the line like crazy. Yeah. The only one that'll do that will be Benoit later. I mean, I mean, I've certainly worked jobs where I'm like, I am mentally checked out. I am not putting in too much effort here anymore. I'm just counting down days till I leave. But people could say that about your performance tonight. Oh. <laughs> just putting your time in, man. Punching that clock. Bang, bang, banging that Punching drum. Punching that clock. Don't worry. At some point, we'll make them work tonight. All right. So why don't we go on? And, and it wouldn't be a Russo booked era if it we didn't have another four different segments in between matches. Uh, we get some more Goldberg Sid interaction. Is that all you got, Matt? What? Is that all you got? What yeah. do you mean? Sid getting up after like Goldberg is, has laid him out. Goldberg's on top of him, just pounding away. And they security comes, backstage agents come. They pull Goldberg off. Sid immediately sits up. He is covered in blood, and he is screaming at the top of his lungs. Is that all you got? Is that all you got? Is he sitting there a bloody mess? It was actually a pretty cool sight. I really like. I like that segment. I liked what they did with Sid tonight. To be honest, yeah. Oh, absolutely. They're trying to really push that Millennium Man gimmick that he was really like he's an unstoppable force and. It was great. It was Sid, Sid. Sid had a real good night. Speaking of unstoppable forces, do you know how you know you got pull? It's when you tell the writers you're going to be on the show. Buff Bagwell comes out. Apparently, he wasn't booked. He knows he's got the stroke, not Jeff Jarrett. Jeff Jarrett comes out. Luger comes out. It's a whole mess. It's a whole mess. It's crazy. It's it, it's weird to think that. The previous Sunday, Jeff Jarrett was the Intercontinental Champion defending against China, and now all of a sudden, here we are. Uh, you know, eight days later, seven days later, Jarrett has already done a run-in on Nitro and took Bagwell out with the with a you know guitar shot, and now Bagwell's looking for his comeuppance in this segment, and oh, it did not translate well on TV, especially Luger botching the guitar shot. Mm-hmm. That that was gross looking very stiff it said, it said that it hit the neck which i was like all right maybe i, I believe that when it shatter so that's probably what happened it's just interesting jared's like hey vince here's how much money you will got pay me if you want me to lose to a woman tonight because i'm gonna go lose to buff bagwell instead i don't know i'd rather be pinned by china than buff bagwell that's all i'm saying so we have mike tonight interviewing sid as sid gets stitches put in and then we see eddie guerrero just sitting on the steps calling Ray Mysterio, I guess. Who had left the hospital with Conan because Conan had the separated shoulder. It's it's no. a whole thing. They got filthy animal business tonight. All right. Yes. And then we get Brad Armstrong coming to the ring in a sweatshirt. And he takes on Berlin, who is accompanied by the wall. Um I had to look up who Berlin was. I for- you didn't oh, know? you didn't realize? I, I forgot. What a transformation. Alex yeah. right to Berlin. I mean, you would have absolutely gimmick. probably have not known if you were just, you know, turning in, tuning in for the first time. I mean, it's crazy to think he was in WCW in what, 93, late 93 and early 94. So, I mean, he's like a five or so year veteran to the company. And we've seen him practically almost on every Halloween Havoc now. I believe since uh, that 94 debut and then, yeah, what a crazy transformation, a different look, a different presentation with his character. 
Uh, super long, lanky body again, always has. Uh, but now just a, a heel version of this character along with, uh, you know, his muscle, his back up the wall, just referring to right now as just the bodyguard. I don't think they were referring to him yet as the wall. Why was this on pay-per-view? This is, yeah. this is, this is uh, a WCW Saturday night. This is uh, a, a semi, uh, an hour two opener on Nitro. This is not pay-per-view. Uh, don't get me wrong. Brad Armstrong, uh, it, phenomenal talent. He just he never connected well at all with the 90s audience. He was a late 80s guy, um, yep. unfortunately. Even he seems surprised he's on the card. Like, oh, jeez, right. i got to take the sweatshirt off. Got his something his going old on Navy tonight. American. Uh, yeah, right. American Seriously. flag sweatshirt. <laughs> um, so why don't you go ahead and uh, break this one down for us? Um, one of the things I noticed about this, the, the entrance to Berlin. Okay. So this is 99. So gold dust has been a long established character by now in WWF, but they seem to be taking some of the, the, the camera angles and the visuals and the lighting that they use, uh, to have a little bit more of a dramatic entrance. So the, the entrance for Berlin seemed, I, I liked it a lot. The lighting was cool. The, the movement of the camera, I thought, really just added uh, to the ambiance of the character. So we start the match with a collar and elbow tie-up between the two. They're jockeying for position back and forth. Eventually, Berlin uh, gets Armstrong in the corner, starts working an arm bar, uh, gets uh, Brad Armstrong down to the mat, begins to drop elbows on Armstrong. Eventually, Armstrong is able to reverse the efforts of Berlin, uh, and he does an armbar as well. But then Berlin starts to do a kip-up and a cartwheel in order to escape Armstrong's attempts. We see Armstrong do a combination of an arm drag, an arm drag off of the ropes, and then eventually hits a drop kick onto Berlin, gets a two-count from referee Charles Robinson. Berlin eventually recovers and does a side suplex, and then catches Armstrong in what basically appears to be another form of a pop-up powerbomb. Basically, Armstrong just jumped really high in the air for a leapfrog, but Berlin stopped and just basically cradled him into a powerbomb. He gets a two-count from the referee. We see Berlin with an Irish whip, and he does a spinning wheel kick. He does an arrogant cover attempt onto Armstrong, who then in turn reverses it for basically a crucifix-like roll-up. Armstrong gets a two-count for his efforts. We see Armstrong hitting the ropes and does a cross body onto Berlin for a two count. Berlin then recovers and then he does a clothesline himself onto Armstrong for a two count. So it's a lot of this just back and forth, one move, two move, a pinfall attempt. Then the other guy, one move, two move, he does a pinfall attempt. There's not a lot of storytelling going on in a lot of these matches. At one point, we see Berlin dropping four to five elbows onto a laying prone Brad Armstrong. After the fourth or fifth elbow, he does for goes for a pin count, only gets a two. We see in the corner, Berlin is choking Armstrong uh, by laying his neck prone over the top rope. Apparently, Berlin's finish, and I don't remember this, was basically a reverse neck breaker, kind of like a rude awakening style neck breaker. Uh, but Armstrong ends up draping his arm over the rope to stop the fall. So as Berlin drops down to do the bump for the neck breaker, 
Armstrong doesn't go down. He's holding onto the rope. So Berlin crashes and burns on his back and his upper neck. And Armstrong decides to go for a pinfall attempt and shockingly gets a surprise pinfall. Uh, quick one, two, three, cover your winner. Uh, surprising shock winner, Brad Armstrong. Post-match, we see the bodyguard, who eventually became known as The Wall, get into the ring, and he and Berlin double-team beat up Armstrong and eventually walk out of the arena. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I do not have much for this match. I saw Brad Armstrong come out, and I thought this is going to be Berlin squash. It's a new character. He's got The Wall with him. Could be some interference, doing something to get this whole act over. And then Brad Armstrong won out of nowhere, and I thought, what in the hell is happening here? I, I And I had to check it again. I'm like, was this a mistake? No, no, nothing looks like a botch mistake, nothing. This looks like the plan, and I do not understand it. It seemed like Barry Horowitz winning level to me. And then with, wasn't Brad Armstrong the one that became buzzkill for a little bit, which was another Russo idea? Yeah, Brad Armstrong decided, yeah, it's basically a, a spinoff of his brother's character, yeah. Okay, but that's coming later, I guess. Luma, yeah, during the, the reboot after they strip all the titles. It's like summer of 2000 kind of yes. deal. So, I mean, honestly, maybe Russo comes in, sees this Berlin character, doesn't care, sees Brad Armstrong's like, you know, your brother and I got along well, we can hang out. And let me try to find a good gimmick for you and give you a spot. And this was the start of it. Yeah, just such an odd match. I mean, it really is. Did not go the way I thought it was going to go. I think I agree with uh, with you gentlemen as well. Um, so after that match, we get the moment of the night, in my opinion. This is the Mike Tanay-Rick Flair promo in... Flair is so good with the material he got. He, it's just so entertaining. Absolutely enjoyed every moment of this. Uh, just 14 time, 14 time craziness. Uh, his woos, just pure entertainer, storyteller. Absolutely. My eyes were glued and watching every minute of it. You know, we talk like Russo comes in, he's got his favorites, he's changing around these gimmicks, he's doing this and that. But there's this weird focus on Flair, too, though. Like, maybe, maybe not everyone loves the. Okay, we do. Maybe there's a group that doesn't love this angle and feels like it was disrespectful to Flair. It seems like Russo is trying to build him back up, make him an edgier character, more interesting to your, you know, late teens, 20 audience that love the Attitude Era stuff. And he's already given Flair more to do than Bischoff was. So we move on to match number five on our card, and it is for our TV title. You you guys know that there's five title matches on the card tonight, right? Crazy. We've already only had five. I'm sure only five. We've already we've already had two between the cruiserweight and the tag. Now we have our television title match. Absolutely. We get Chris Benoit taking on the dog faced gremlin Rick Steiner. Uh, what do you guys think of this one? I like Rick Steiner. Like him in this is version of this heel gimmick, singles heel gimmick. I mean, he, it's too bad that they he couldn't have embraced you know the the evil side earlier and maybe tagged up with his brother in the NWO. Like the little homage to his brother with the goatee and the little gold patch. 
you know, blonde patch that he has in the middle of the goatee. Uh, decent match back and forth between the guys. Uh, not so hot about the finish. I agree. Um, I think we're in this window here where Rick Steiner could have been something and just needed the right storyline, the right push, the right whatever behind him. And it didn't happen. Looked phenomenal here. Played a great heel. I could have seen him going for a title of higher caliber than the TV title in this gimmick. Didn't happen, but I was impressed with him. Uh, what I what I was also impressed by was his entrance music, which is very clearly a cover of Welcome to the Jungle. That stays in, yet DDP's cover right. is dubbed over. Is so I'm dubbed curious, over, like, which doesn't yeah, make sense. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if there's just a publishing right or something that they didn't want to pay for. Oh, I mean, I'm sure it's just like, it, it's interesting that how would you would think the same band musician, songwriter, whatever would have done both covers, like would have been an overall WCW account and right. to have one that they no longer have the rights to, but one that they do. And I'm sure there's others in between there. Yeah. It was, yeah. It was like Chris Jericho's, they had they dubbed in as break the walls down as opposed to yep. his even flow like and I think you know, Ravens got dubbed Raven, too. Ravens got dubbed as well, absolutely. Yeah. One one thing that shocked me was how much Rick Steiner looked like Scott here. Yeah. Like mm. I always thought they were very two distinct looking brothers, basically, but they really do. I didn't realize it. They really do look look alike in the face. When when Scott was always wearing doing the longer hair, the mullet and Rick doing the shorter hair with the headgear and the in the in the goatee, they looked very very different. But now that Scott had embraced the shorter hair and started growing out the facial hair, all absolutely looked very very similar to one another. Yeah, and I think Rick not having the headgear helped that too. Yeah, so why don't we uh, go ahead and break this one down? Hot tag to Hellion, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen. It is now time. For the Kevin Hellions Halloween Havoc breakdown. And before we go, I mean, we're going to get some insight into Kevin's psyche here because he's doing a Benoit match. So, so take it away. Honestly, I was worried it was going to be the Brad Armstrong Berlin match. I was like, I got nothing for that. <laughs> for, for new listeners, got to take Stan Lee approach. Every episode could be someone's first episode. I do not know what match is picked as the hot tag of the night. These two usually do discuss it privately ahead of time. So as I'm watching show, I just have to take my notes as is for each and every match and each and every segment and hope that I have something interesting for the mystery hot tag of the night. So these are my notes as I wrote while watching the show. Chris Benoit, TV champion versus Rick Steiner. Rick with the cover of Welcome to the Jungle. Bell rings. Rick leaves the ring. Rick playing the stalling heel character. Benoit slides out. Rick slides in. Rick starts to fight. Rick with a big clothesline. Rick Steiner pops up Chris, catches him, turns for a big power slam. Chris Benoit fights back, hits superplex. Chris Benoit whips Rick Steiner, goes for the crossface. Rick to the outside. Chris Benoit dives out onto him, fight outside. Chris Benoit into the guardrail and the ring steps. Chris sends Rick post to post and then hits drop kick but only gets two count. Rick shoves the referee and then decides to hit Chris Benoit on the nuts. Rick Steiner with a very odd leg submission move. Chris Benoit goes for a drop kick. Rick hangs onto the ropes and Chris crashes. Chris Benoit goes over Rick Steiner's back, not sure if he slipped or meant to, and then crashes hard onto the mat. Good release German suplex by Rick Steiner. This match is slow. 
and I'll, I'll hold this up here. I actually wrote slow with a lot of spaces in between to imply slow. Second release German suplex. Rick sets up for another suplex. Chris Benoit quickly reverses it into a DDT. Benoit off the ropes. Tackle. Benoit with a bunch of chops. Then Benoit with some rolling German suplexes. Rick Steiner sends Chris Benoit into the corner. Then the referee. Chris Benoit reacts, thinking it's Rick Steiner coming into the corner behind him. Ref bump. Rick grabs a chair. Chris suplexes Rick Steiner. Chris slaps the chair into Rick Steiner's head. Diving headbutt onto the chair. Dean Malenko runs down. Malenko ends up hitting Chris Benoit with a chair. Another Halloween Havoc heel turn. Dean Malenko throws the referee back in the ring. Counts the pin. Rick Steiner wins the match. Dean Malenko leaves and hugs Saturn in the entranceway. That has been your Kevin Hellion's Halloween Havoc breakdown. Man, it was like I was front row, hard camera side. <laughs> <laughs> I One thing I want to say, uh, the swan dive headbutt off the top rope with Rick Steiner having the chair and Rick Steiner throwing that chair in the air uh, towards Benoit as he's coming down. That could have been a very, very bad injury for Benoit if had he had the leg of the chair poked out in a weird way or he just the way Benoit came down and how that chair was thrown. Ugh, crazy. Uh, you could totally see the swerve for the night. It, it's kind of weird that the former horseman is turning on the other horseman uh, and deciding to go with Revolution with, with Malenko's heel turn here. Uh, but certainly you could see that uh, there were plans for a revolution moving forward without Benoit as a part of their stable. There certainly was a, cert- a power play between Shane Douglas and Benoit, who was really the leader, who's the face of the of the group. So makes sense moving forward that, you know, we'll eliminate it. And we'll go back to the whole idea of the triple threat as opposed to a four man group. Yeah, it just goes to show you, too, like we said earlier, these guys were going to be in WWE, you know, coming up. And here's Benoit taking chair shot headbutts still like two months out probably leads to some cte and then leads to you know other things so um why don't we follow that up with mike tenay interviewing brett hart and then we get match number six on the night which is the total package with elizabeth taking on brett the hitman hart it's crazy that they're trying to rebrand lex luger using a moniker that they had always referred to him as and now we're only referring to him um, by that moniker. It'd be like calling Owen Hart just the Black Heart. Well, you know, it just it didn't make sense to me whatsoever. Interesting pairing him with Elizabeth. Unfortunately, we all know the outcome down the road for Elizabeth. But Elizabeth looks so genuinely happy working with Luger, being around Luger, just genuine big smiles on her face. It didn't look like an act or a facade whatsoever. So uh, she just she looked she looked like she like enjoyed being out there. Well, I mean, you can't you can't blame her. I mean, Lou, the total package is the best body in the business. He did look pretty solid. Uh, certainly, at least that's what the commentators are saying. Uh, at least what the commentators said. Uh, looked amazing. Certainly, a lot thinner than his ninety one, ninety two. You know, earlier run with or with WCW. Um, Crazy how things are starting to change with 
uh, the, you know, the testing for steroids and so on and growth hormones and, and so, and everything like that, but still looked phenomenal for how much time he had been in the business. And, uh, I feel Brett got a decent match. Of course, Brett himself was doing most of the offense in the match until the very, very end where he started selling the ankle injury from earlier, uh, earlier in the week that he had earned on, on nitro. I like this entrance for Luger a lot. I thought it looked very cool. I thought showing off the physique made a lot of sense. Uh, honestly, it's a lot like the narcissist gimmick, but it just seems to come across a lot better here. Uh, um, Elizabeth, not only happy, but fully embracing the heel referee role or heel referee, heel manager role, distracting the referee. She did great here. Um, I, uh, I, I thought differently about the match than what you're saying so far, but I also think the total package is, so, it's gotta be a Russo thing to just be like, you know, teehee, I'm saying stuff, check out package. Oh, package is getting a pounding tonight. Oh, look at package. Come back. Like it all seems, he, he may as well call have called them nuts or balls or something. Absolutely. No, I totally got it. And again, I mean, they've referred to him as this before as the total package Lex Luger. And now all of a sudden we're just kind of rebranding him. Yeah, of course, this has Russo's fingerprints all over it. All right. So why don't you go ahead and uh, break this one down? So Brett immediately gets into the ring after his he's the second man in his entrance and immediately starts taking the fight to Luger. Eventually, they're out on the floor. Hart ends up ramming Luger into the guardrail and into the commentary table. We see Brett doing a head. Hey, uh, between- sorry, Matt. Can you refer to Luger as package, please? <laughs> And I'll put like sexy music underneath it. Cause I just want to hear you say Brett Rams package into the Rams package. Well, yeah, and do it sexily. Like, I made Kevin night. do it uh do some stuff sexily. If you could also read something sexily, <laughs> please really gotta reword that. And please use the word package. Thank you. So we see Brett immediately <laughs> taking the fight to the package. They tumble out onto the floor. And Brett rams the package into the guardrail. (laughs) I mean, let's be honest here. Russo wasn't wrong. I mean, it's classic. (laughs) Yeah, that's not going to happen. Oh, come on. Come on. Do it for the audience. Crone Meltzer's popping at home. Sure he is. Popping for the package. He's popping for the package. (laughs) Oh, we're children. Gosh, we are. Jesus, how the hell How do you host the podcast last night? Well, we talked about the package. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so Brett immediately starts taking the fight to the total package. They roll out onto the floor, and we see Brett Hart ramming the total package into the guardrail, rams it into the commentary table. We see Brett Hart do a headbutt between the back. the headbutt to the abdomen right towards the beginning of the match. I'm not doing this as a package. There's no way, because you guys can't keep a straight face. So I should have hot-tagged this match. Is what well, I here's done. the thing, though. How can, you, how can you keep a straight face when you have a package in front of you? Oh, man. Ah. Please keep calling the package. I'll, I'll mute myself. Both of you, damn it. Mute yourself. Right, we're going to mute ourselves. All we'll right, let the music right. play in the background. we got to do this for the All right. 
So we have the total package against Bret the Hitman Hart. We have Bret Hart immediately taking the fight to the total package at the start of the match. They end up tumbling out onto the floor. Bret Hart rams the total package into the guardrail, also into the commentary table. Back into the ring, we see Bret Hart doing a questionable headbutt between the total package's legs to the lower abdomen. <laughs> I can't do this, man. I can't do it. There's no way. All right. You know what? On that note, why don't we go right to commercial break? We'll be back. There's no way. We're never going to get through this tape tonight. We're going to commercial. No We're going to commercial. We're, going to... We're just going to skip the whole thing. It's so fun. <laughs> oh, God. Vince Russo's he right, knew... though. He knew that line was coming, too. <laughs> Questionable headbutt yeah. between packages' legs. Right. You guys good? <sighs> yeah. Kevin, you got to do a package commercial, please. Okay. Like, we'll deliver your package morning, noon, and night for holidays. <laughs> Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Hi, listeners. Kevin here. As you know, here on The House Show, we get tons and tons of letters and emails and phone calls from all of our fans, and I would like to take the opportunity to read one of these. Dear House Show, I recently have bought many a wrestling figure, and my UPS and FedEx packages seem to always get damaged when they show up at my home. Do you have any suggestions? Signed, Adam. Well, you're in luck, because right now, the House Show has partnered with a brand new force in shipping around the world. That's right. We are now proudly sponsored by the total package with age comes experience comes wisdom and no one is more experienced in handling packages than the total package sure some places might say that all of this shipping around the holidays is backbreaking work but the total package guarantees that they can put anything on their back and they will not feel a bit of torture are you worried about your packages being left on the porch and being stolen while you are at work? Total Package has you covered. Let them know your security option of choice, whether it be a ring, a nest, a dog, or Hugh knobs. That's right. Just let them know to jiggle the doorknob and let themselves in. Leave the package in the front door. If you act now, we'll throw in a one-on-one -on -one call with our lovely receptionist, Elizabeth. She is all over the day and night routines of the total package. So that's right. As you're ordering stuff across the internet this holiday season, you should always leave your packages in the hands of the total package. We're back from the. <laughs> I can't do it. We're back, guys, from the commercial break. Uh, thank you very much to the educator for that breakdown of the package versus Bret Hart. Uh, we followed that up with Mike today, uh, interviewed Goldberg once again. Uh, and then 
we get Medusa coming out in a bikini for the WCW Cologne. Now, usually we have the educator, but let's just go right to Kevin Allians on this one. Kevin, what were your thoughts on Medusa? God, she's so hot. <laughs> she is just beautiful, stunning. Look, I, I like that gimmick because I'm remembering uh, the Evan Courageous thing going on around the same time with her and all. Just looks amazing. And she comes out and, I mean, looks great in the bikini. Got heels going too. Has a little dye in her hair. It's like, oh, she looks great. Boy, you got Medusa and you have nothing better for her to do than promote your cologne. This is awful. Terrible. I feel so bad for her. And then she walks on the announce table, stands on top of it, poses and all. I mean, I'm enjoying it, but I feel bad for her. Like, this is a very talented actual wrestler. You should be able to do something with her. And then she just says, this is BS, and I hate this, and dumps it all over Heenan. And all three of them start talking about how terrible this product they're promoting smells and how awful it was. And I fell in love with the entire segment. Yeah, it was a great segment, not just because of the eye candy, but just because of the the back backhanded barbs about you know the powers that be forcing her to do this exploiting her kind of deal as you know for that shock value kind of deal um yeah i thought this was a cool segment this remember i said i remembered moments from pay-per-views it's one of them this is one of them i you know of course i was 14 when this pay-per-view took place so i i I think i used to have a lot of pictures of her outfits at this time in wcw yeah so uh we follow that up with a hogan sting video um and then we get the hogan sting match now this is such a five-star classic such a top five discussion such a weird match um hogan's music kicks on he doesn't come out sting then comes out and then hogan comes out hogan lays down for sting after whispering something in his ear and walks off what what's going on what's the storyline here what I don't know exactly what this is. I I am not familiar with what's going on. I have a feeling that um, I'm willing to bet that the powers that be kind of really pulled shenanigans here and told Hogan he was going to lose. And then, you know, Hogan having to do his job, did what he did, didn't want to do it in, in an actual productive match. Just kind of like went out there, did what he had to do to lose kind of deal. And I really think this kind of laid the groundwork for him getting a better contract and creative control. And then uh, him pitching a fit in seven, eight months with whatever was supposed to happen with his match and Jarrett. And this perhaps was like the retaliation for, for Hogan acting the way he did in this. I mean, I could be completely off. I'm, this is just conjecture on my end. I'm not, really familiar with what's going on but it's just a a crazy kind of shock value angle uh there's certainly bigger things going on behind the scenes than probably what we were truly aware of we were in that work shoot what was real what was scripted for this one and for the bash of the beach one Special Beach, I've heard both over the years, and the same people have changed their mind and given different stories. And ultimately, I'm not losing sleep over it. Whatever. But on the surface, let's let's just be marks for a minute. On the surface, if Hogan went to the powers that be and they said, you're going to lose the sting, and he said no, and they said, you're going to go out there and lose, and he said, screw you, went out there, just laid down, took the pin, then he absolutely deserves to be told that he has to do the same thing 
or that you know he absolutely deserves everything that happened at Bash the Beach later on and being made to look the fool over it. If he pulled this, then he deserves that response later on. Or it could be part of some elaborate rib or some elaborate storyline, or we're just too dumb and we don't understand. I don't know. Not from New York. Well, I am Russo, but whatever. So, so going into this match, Sting's the heel, Hogan's the face. Yeah, supposedly. Right? It's just such a weird thing. I, I think this one was a work, personally, because why would Hogan have an issue dr- losing to Sting? Well, okay. I could see him having an issue losing to Jarrett because Jarrett's not on that level. Let's be honest here. Right. All right. So Sting or Sting won the title from Hogan at Starcade after that year and a half buildup. Did Hogan pin Sting later after that? No, he never got his win back. Okay. So maybe he thought he was getting his win back this night, much like them dumping a bunch of money at Warrior just so Hogan can get his win back. Just such a weird... You know, weird thing. Well, you know, they get out of it real quick. They throw it to a Goldberg Sid video, and then we get match number eight, which was for the WCW United States Championship. Um, oh, and I forgot the last match was for the heavyweight title, too. You know what's weird, though, is because that match is number seven on the card. Was that supposed to be the main event then? I I just oh. I don't see it. I Maybe <clears throat> they knew backstage-wise that there was going to be shenanigans and they decided to put it kind of midway in the card. To me, it just seemed awkward that they were having a world title match and then the uh, the mid-card U.S. title match after the fact. Uh, I have a feeling they knew things were not going to work out the way as they originally scheduled, which is why maybe Hogan was in a street gear as opposed to not going on last. I mean, that could be part of it, though. The match wasn't going to go on last or something. I don't know. Um, and maybe they decided they were going to have Flair DDP be the main event or go on last for the night. And I, I just, I don't know, but you know, they certainly try to make up for it later. And then there's so many swerves and shenanigans with the makeup for this match later and the storylines that played out after the fact, it's just crazy. That's what makes me feel like the whole thing is at work and it's fruitful. Like, oh, everyone will be talking about it. We'll have Hogan come out. He'll just lay down. He'll get pinned. Everyone will wonder what's going on. They'll tune into Nitro. They'll, you know, the every the wrestling world will be all up on it. Maybe we'll get mainstream news because it's Hogan. To not have it as the actual main event and to have the U.S. title, the strap match, and then something else later makes me think this is all work. It's an elaborate plan. Yeah, like I said, I think this one is a work because it's their first night out and they want to, you know, give it everything, get the, the, the people talking. Um, and then I don't think the Jarrett one is, though. I think the Jarrett one actually was a shoot. Um, my, my question is, this is like you had Buff Bagwell, Medusa, everyone referring to the powers of B. Are they playing too much into the internet crowd? I mean, this is 99. Oh, absolutely. It's not like yeah. now. How, ma- how many people knew the happenings of backstage, would you say, that are in that crowd? 10, 20% if that? Oh, I'm sure. I mean, internet was really becoming popular then. Websites like OneWrestling.com, WCW Wrestling, ProWrestlingNews.com. I mean, those things were really picking up steam and getting followers. So... Yeah, I'm sure that there was a lot of, you know, playing to that particular group of followers to make sure that they're either getting played or swerved. I'm about to say an awful self-own here. Playing to the audience that has all the free time in the world 
to go online, read all the news sites, read all the dirt sites, go into forums, comment on everything, speculate on what's working, what's the shoot, what's going on. Those same fans with that amount of free time do not have the money to get a plane ticket, a hotel, and tickets to go to Las Vegas to see the show. Because if they had that money, they'd be at work, not online the whole time. And I say this as one of them. Well, I think it's different now because of cell phones. I'll give you that. Because you, you can this, check Twitter very easily. From home and all. But at the time of this, you, you would have would to sit on it and dial up. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, so I, I just thought, you know, they're playing way too much into it. So, uh, But why don't we get into what is considered match number eight, which is for the WCW US title. It is Sid versus Goldberg. Um, and was this the best match of the night, guys? I wish it was longer, but I understand the storyline and what they were trying to accomplish. And Sid was just an absolute mess come the end of the match. I mean, so it makes sense. Bloody where they as it. all bloody can be. Um, this was, to me, the most entertaining match for the storyline. I literally thought it was going to be the DDP flare match, but the crowd was not into that one. And I think it was because they were into this one. They were very much into this one, absolutely, and it's a it's a realistic, credible threat to Goldberg, uh, a guy that's just you know big, muscular, threatening, intimidating, and th- they had the rocket ship you know attached to Sid doing the Millennium Man gimmick uh, leading up to this match and even after the fact. So yeah, um, I, I like this match a lot. It was a lot of just basic stuff from Goldberg punches and elbows to work on that cut. But the storyline of Sid not really giving up, keep trying to fight back, be competitive in the match, even though he's bleeding like buckets of blood. Um, it, it was great, great storytelling. I like this a lot. Uh, it, it was kind of interesting. I think it starts here where Tony and Bobby are kind of, done with the night and done with Russo for the evening. But there's little things. Uh, Sid comes out and then Goldberg comes out. But Sid's the champ, so technically he should come out last, but he's not Goldberg who gets the big entrance. And they actually um, before beforehand they say the champion is supposed to come out last. Yes, except for this match and the previous match where Hogan had to come out last. Like everything's just so all over the place. I think every... Every champion comes out first, I think, on the show. For the whole night? Because Disco comes out first over Lash. Benoit comes out first. Filthy animals carry the physical belt. But it's vacated, technically. Right. Right. So, yeah, I honestly think every champion came out first. Mm, Maybe. Which is a WWE thing. Right. So, all right. Sid was heel at this point. Goldberg's face, correct? Yes. And yet. We have incredible sympathy and empathy and caring for Sid and his condition during this. It's crazy. Yeah, it's almost like a. Um, it's almost like they tried to create Mania Thirteen, right? And in a way, but I mean, they do. You're not turning Goldberg heel here. Russo does, but you, you know, it doesn't happen here. Down the road. Down the road. So why don't you go ahead and break this one down for us? So Sid comes to the ring and during his entrance and the, the weird you know music uh, overture that WWE slips in there to cover. Uh, it just it seemed awkward knowing what Sid's music was for the time. 
uh, what I liked about this is Sid is still covered in dried blood <clears throat> from getting beat up earlier in the match or earlier in the night. He can tell still a very, very fresh wound on his forehead and it's ready to just gouge right open. And, and he is going to be bleeding buckets in a few minutes. Uh, Goldberg gets his traditional backstage entrance with the, the big slam in the locker room door. You know, the cops walk him through backstage and eventually into the arena. It's crazy that you have all these police and security escorting you, but they can't seem to stop Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. Nash's attack in the in the aisle way at the beginning of the match. So we see Scott Hall and Kevin Nash attack Goldberg in the aisle as he's walking towards the ring. As Goldberg kind of like recovers and turns around and is looking as if he's going to start walking after them as they're kind of, you know, chicken shitting it back towards the uh, the locker room. We see Sid come run down from ringside and begin to attack Goldberg. So Goldberg ends up sending uh, Sid into the guardrail eventually. And he press slams Sid up in the air and kind of lays him chest first over the guardrail at ringside. We see Goldberg slamming Sid's head into the ring steps two or three times. And uh, we see a couple of right hands to that cut to the uh, over the left eye. And eventually that cut opens right up. Goldberg and Sid keep trading blows back and forth on the floor. And you can see the efforts on Goldberg's end is just to focus over that on that cut over the right eye and just get gold or get Sid to bleed. Eventually back in the ring, Sid is able to do an Irish whip to Goldberg on the ropes and he hits the big boot to take Goldberg off of his feet. We see Sid uh, wrap up Goldberg into the camel clutch and he's starting to really visibly see being covered in that crimson mask. Goldberg eventually powers out of the camel clutch and picks up Sid on his shoulders and does an electric chair drop fallback uh, splat for a two count from referee Mickey J. We see Goldberg now working on a reverse chin lock in the middle of the ring, but then he does uh, 12 to 6 elbows down uh, onto uh, Sid's head to continue to work on that wound. We see Goldberg hitting punches on that open wound to Sid, and Sid is keep, keeps trying to fight back to show that he's a competitive, uh, still competitive in the match, even though he's busted open. We see Goldberg with a corner Irish whip. Sid's body rebounds out of the corner and Goldberg hits a stiff clothesline. He gets a two count from the referee. We see Goldberg continuing with his blows to the head. He keeps uh, like flicking his fist that's covered in blood to kind of wipe off the blood off of his gloves. Sid tries to fight back. He does like three or four kicks to Goldberg's abdomen and his like last kick Goldberg ends up kicking or uh, catching Sid's leg and causes him to do a flat back bump in the middle of the ring. Goldberg is now working Sid in the corner. Sid is now an absolute bloody mess. You see Goldberg like talking to the referee, like, Hey, what are, are we going to continue with this? Uh, I honestly think that Sid or Goldberg was like genuinely concerned because it was a real big bloody mess. We see Goldberg continuing to work on his punches, his elbows, Eventually, Sid is in the middle of the ring. He's kind of like on his knees in the middle of the ring. And as uh, Goldberg is ready to set him up for the next move, Sid kind of like his arms just drop flailing to his side. The referee gets in and Sid basically passes out on his knees to blood loss. The ref calls the match, calls for the bell. People are kind of like, what in the world's going on? Uh, Goldberg is declared the winner. 
We eventually see Rick Steiner, who was like a stablemate of Sid at the time. He comes down to ringside to get into the ring. Sid gets a surge of energy and is like ready to continue to fight and is ready for the match to continue. But the referee's telling him, no, I've stopped the match. It's over. Goldberg is announced as United States champion. Sid doesn't want to leave ringside. He wants to fight. At one point, Rick Steiner's dragging him out of the ring and trying to get him to the back. He's wiping Sid's face with a towel. Sid gets another surge of energy. He turns around as if he's going to charge back to the ring and continue the match and fight. But eventually uh, Steiner gets him to, to simmer down and they so get him to go to the back and get attended on by doctors. Your winner due to referee stoppage and new United States champion uh, was Goldberg. It, it was such a, a shocking beat down for Sid and I know you know stuff was built up through the night Goldberg's just you know so dominant and everything but it was still surprising then I thought is it like look at what Brock Lesnar did for years it's real similar to it we just have this monster this beast here that's taking out our top level talent here and and no one else is at his level so whenever someone is it's you know someone can defeat him or even hang with him it goes such a long way because you've built him up so much what really got me is the looks on Sid's face when he was covered in blood. There were a few thing, times where all you see is red and then the white of his eyes. And that is it because he was just bleeding so well, <clears throat> so much. But it, like Sid didn't get a chance to wrestle a good match. I think like the most offense he got in was that camel clutch. But his selling and his visuals and his entertainment part of it he did phenomenal to just put goldberg over and make him look like a monster for this um i i think i could agree on best of the night i couldn't agree for a top five by any means but i thought it was great and honestly you could have closed the pay-per-view with this with whatever the heck was going on for world title beforehand you could have closed with this and people would have been like that was incredible i need to see more of goldberg See if Sid can recover from this. Yeah, no, I don't think it's the top five. I, I just think it was the best match of the night. It's one that I thoroughly yeah. enjoyed just because the crowd was so into it. Once again, though, um, crowds really do react to Sid. And true. Very much so. Very much so. He was in that uh, the, the Great White North uh, Camp Cornette <laughs> match. In all honesty. How many fans do softball games get? A lot more than what Madison Square Garden held that night when Diesel won the world title. Oh. Um, I just want to point out, too, that uh, AEW, call up Sid. He's two years younger than Sting. So, God. <laughs> as crazy as that sounds. Yeah, so why don't we follow that up? Uh, we actually get a clip from Monday night, which is Flair and Kimberly in the hotel. Love it. Um, Sting comes out, sets up an open challenge, and then walks back to the dressing room. And then we get DDP with Kimberly taking on Flair in the strap match. And like I said, this match kind of fell flat for me um, just because the crowd wasn't into it. I didn't think it was a bad match, but there wasn't much to it. Unfortunately, what really deflates this match for me is the beginning in which they're brawling all over the place in the crowd. It's just a lot of nothing of just back and forth, whipping each other, chops, you know, punches, kicks kind of deal. Um I struggled to follow the first half of the match uh, when they were brawling in the crowd. 
I like the finish of the match itself um, and the run-in that happens towards the end to try to sell the severity of a potential injury that may have uh, occurred at, for the finish. Um, but the, just the beginning of the match, I just I struggled to get through it. It's weird because I'm talking about Flair and DDP who are both doing well. But I almost wish someone could have gone over the match with them. Like maybe not been in the crowd so long, maybe done more in the ring, maybe something else because there was chemistry. It was good. I like the storyline. It really kicked in in the second half. But like educators saying the first half, I'm like, what the heck is going on? Like, especially with all the other shenanigans and oddities of the night. I'm waiting for something to go screwy here. And I mean, yeah, there's a little bit of a screwy ending, but it at least made sense. I'm waiting for something absolutely absurd to take place for most of this match. And in the second half, I could finally relax and say, oh, no, we're actually just having a a match here. But first half, I was just, you know, I had to put the VHS in front of the time. Said something screwy is going to happen here. I don't even want to know when it's coming. Also, let's not forget, this is a strap match. Where it's not all four posts, but pinfall or submission strap match. Yeah, how much does that hurt the strap match? I think, it, what, what's the point of it? Do a dog collar match then. Right. Yeah, it's just a point to, to spank. Flare like spanking. Well, I mean, 14 times. 14 times. All right, educator, why don't you go ahead and uh, break this one down? Uh, you know, it's starting the match. There's a delay in which, you know, DDP is reluctant in putting the strap around, not because he's not willing to, but Flair keeps kind of yanking the strap away just as DDP grabs it. Eventually, they are connected by the strap in the ring uh, ringside area, and they eventually spill out onto the floor. They end up brawling all over the floor. There's spots of just whipping each other back and forth with the ch- with the strap in between of them. Uh, they're doing chop. Flair's doing his typical chops. They're just brawling all over the place. Uh, I'm going to pick it up when they finally end up back towards ringside after they've been brawling in the crowd. Flair tosses DDP over the barricade. When he steps over, he notices Kimberly is right there. And Flair ends up going after Kimberly, who's still wearing that smoking hot green outfit. Uh, and uh, Flair ends up forcing himself onto Kimberly and starts guessing her twice. DDP eventually clips Flair from behind and starts working on his legs. Uh, DDP whips Flair with the strap, throws him into the guardrail, and then hammers Flair's forehead um, into the guardrail, and Flair is now busted open as a result of DDP's efforts. Flair ends up battling back with some chops, uh, but DDP ends up overcoming and tossing Flair over onto the announce table over by uh, Bobby Heenan and Tony Schiavone. Finally, the competitors are back into the ring. We see uh, DDP dropping an elbow on a downed flare. Once finally back into the ring, we get a two count from referee Charles Robinson. Flair ends up hitting a low blow to DDP after DDP was spending more time kind of gesturing to the crowd that he was going to eventually set up for the diamond cutter. We see Flair whipping DDP over the back twice with the strap. Flair chops DDP, uh, picks up DDP in the corner and uh, sets him up and chops him in the corner. Then he does a really unique spot that I don't remember him ever doing in his career. So DDP's back is to the corner. His back is prone, so his arms are straddling over the ropes. Ric Flair does a double leg and picks up both of DDP's legs 
and just does a straight right hand right to the crotch of DDP with his legs suspended in the air. I thought it was a great spot. Uh, unique look at the low blow. Punches him hard right in the groin. Crowd kind of popped for that. Flair with a clothesline. And then he does his infamous pull out, pull down the knee pad and do the Ric Flair knee drop to the forehead as Flair kind of tucks and rolls through after dropping that knee. We see Flair draping DDP's leg over the bottom rope and he does his sit out hip drop onto the onto the leg and the shin to start working on the knee for the figure four. We see Ric Flair uh, doing a bunch of chop blocks to DDP's lower leg. He does his second knee drop, but now to DDP's leg so that he can set up for the figure four. Uh, Ric Flair ends up wrapping the strap around DDP's neck and then does the figure four leg lock so that he can kind of choke. It's a kind of a, a restricted choke onto DDP while the figure four is on. And it was a unique setup in that they end up doing the spot where DDP is kind of like passing out because of the pain, but because he's also being choked. And referee Charles Robinson starts counting DDP's shoulders down one, two, and like two and three quarters, and DDP is barely escaping. They end up doing that spot twice in a row. Uh, You don't really see those pinfall attempts during a figure four leg lock too often. DDP eventually rolls towards the rope. And Flair decides to break the hold. Not sure why in a strap match. It's no DQ, right? But Flair ends up breaking the hold. We see DDP with a headbutt and a low blow to Ric Flair's groin. DDP wraps the strap around Flair's throat and hits the diamond cutter. And as he goes for the pin, Charles Robinson counts one, two. And when he's going down for the three, he decides to hesitate and not slap the mat. I'm not sure if he was expecting Flair to kick out or if he's doing a spot where he's protecting his mentor, Ric Flair. But even though he doesn't slap the mat for a three, he still turns and ends up calling for the ring bell because the match is over. Apparently there was a three count there. DDP wasn't too happy with how Charles Robinson called the match. So he ends up doing a diamond cutter to knocking down Charles Robinson. We see DDP choking Ric Flair with the strap. His son, David Flair, now runs to ringside. Bleach blonde David Flair with the crowbar. Uh, Kimberly intercepts David Flair, kind of like starts talking to him, distracts him, and then knees him stiff into the groin. She ends up handing the crowbar to, uh, to Diamond Dallas Page. Diamond Dallas Page then hits Ric Flair in the groin with that crowbar. And then Diamond Dallas Page diamond cutters David Flair twice and then drops a stiff elbow to David Flair's groin um, and Diamond Dallas Page and Kimberly leave. My problem with the finish or the end of the match, David Flair just took two diamond cutters. He then took an elbow to the groin and maybe 30, 40 seconds later, he's already up and crawling towards his dad. After taking those maneuvers, checking on his father to see how bad his father was injured from the big, you know, uh, crowbar to the groin. We see EMTs come down to ringside to start working on Ric Flair. They've got a backboard. They've got a stretcher. They're putting a collar on Ric Flair. You actually visibly see Charles Robinson and David Flair. They're like visibly crying. They got tears going down their face, probably because they're concerned again. They're selling their concern for for Ric Flair's status. Ric Flair is carted out on a stretcher. 
and we see the stretcher getting wheeled out to the back to where the ambulance is. Just as they're about to load Ric Flair into the ambulance, it turns out that the filthy animals have returned from the hospital. They are the ones driving the ambulance, and all four filthy animals uh, attack Ric Flair on the stretcher, attack David Flair, and they end up dumping David Flair off to the side, but throw Ric Flair into the back of the ambulance, and they all pile into the ambulance, including Tori Wilson, and they drive off with Ric Flair in the back of the ambulance. There was some good stuff in the second half, like you pointed out. Uh, I I also really like that figure four spot and uh, Paige getting choked by the strap. Just phenomenal work by both of them. The thing that got me is this is a match when Tony and Bobby are just like, what in the hell is going on? And they constantly are like, boy, have you ever seen anything like this? Oh, this is a new era. What was it? We've seen the future of WCW and it's uh, it's it's this. Like you can tell, I mean, honestly, Tony and Bobby have seen Ric Flair being put into different situation and different character than he's been. They've known him forever. They've watched DDP grow from a joke manager into a world title level level contender here. And now they're seeing all this stuff that Russo just decides to change out of nowhere because, well, it worked up north. This is what you guys got to do. And honestly, it sounds throughout this match, which is a shame considering who's in this match. It's like they just check out. It's like your your announced team is just done with the company and with the night and just what the hell are we doing anymore? Uh, Bobby even more so than Tony. I think Tony's like, I just gotta go along with this. But Bahin and I, I really feels like uh, I've been there. I've I've been to the companies you're talking about. This is not gonna work. I think that they probably had tons of complaints. Probably didn't want to see longtime friends be treated certain ways. But what are you gonna do at this point? I did love the ambulance spot. That was hysterical. I, I legit just thought Flair was being taken away, forgot about the filthy animals till they popped out. I just thought that was a fun spot. The end to this match is so weird because it looks like Flair was supposed to get his like foot on the rope or something. That's what I was wondering, yeah. Because he stretches for it. He's just too far gone. I don't know. It just... I don't know if it was supposed to be like that. It was supposed to be controversy. The only thing with, with they forget with the controversy is when you put too much of it on your show, nothing stands out. It washes, mm-hmm. you know, washes out. Yeah. So you had controversy no, blur, right? in the tag match, you know, with the with Harlem Heat getting the pin, but then them not seeing it, yada, yada, yada. That's, I mean, the Sting Hogan stuff, like, just too much, too much being thrown, thrown at it, so. This is like the ref bumps from the previous Havoc. You you keep doing it. It means nothing. You keep wanting to do these controversial endings to matches, get people talking. I'm left with, I just don't care, and I don't want to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, we have one. Except for on this fine podcast, of course. Yeah, yeah. Always controversial here. So we got match number 10, which is our main event, apparently, and that is Sting's Open Challenge. And who answers the call? None other than Goldberg for what is... A non-title title match. It's crazy. The announcers uh, for the television audience talk about how that this is not for any title, meaning it's not for Sting's World Heavyweight Championship. And I'm assuming they're implying it's also not for Goldberg's United States title that he had just won earlier in the night. Yet, after everything all plays out, we end up seeing Goldberg announced as the new world champion. So once again, keeping up with tradition, Kevin... A man holding a title he did not 
win. Uh, well, that's the thing I'm wondering now. Do they reverse it on Nitro? Did they just oh, stick with it? Oh, there will be a follow-up. I will explain. Okay. Because you, you need to understand the next four weeks leading into the next pay-per-view and just how everything from this pay-per-view gets undone and it's crazy to what we're leading to for the next pay-per-view. Again, just showing you what how WCW was just going downhill like crazy. I will admit that this pay-per-view makes me want to watch the first little bits of, of, of the next Nitros going through just to kind of see how crazy this was. Because at this point in WCW, I was pretty much checked out. I don't know about you guys. I mean, I think all of us were. Uh, I was at this point Nitro. I mean, because they were doing basically back to back airings of the three hour show, right? It was from eight to eleven, and, and then, then they again would at repeat. repeat. I I would at midnight. I would be, or maybe it started at midnight. Um, I'm in college. I'm in my ju- sophomore year at this point. Uh, I'm watching WWF. And if however late I'm staying up, it's in the background. I'll get bits and pieces of WCW and I would just pick up the pieces, go looking at results from uh, ProWrestlingNews.com or One Wrestling or whatever at the time. I, I think I was watching Raw live and then I'd pop into tape and tape Nitro and I'd just go to bed and watch it in the morning. Yeah, I was just watching Raw. I wouldn't even bother with WCW at this point. So, um, so do you want to break down this three-minute Matt Classic? Absolutely. Um, so uh, Goldberg comes to the ring. He does not. He's not carrying his championship belt. Um, he's coming in second. Uh, so both guys are in the ring. Sting ends up stepping out of the ring to stall because there's no referee out there. Uh, I don't know if this was again called on the fly, but all of a sudden we see Charles Robinson, who was the ref in the last match, who ate a diamond cutter. Can I can I just point out that the uh, the the announcers say, well, we know Charles Robinson won't be out because of what just happened to Ric Flair, and then Tony Schiavone has to go. Well, I guess he's coming out. <laughs> and he bolts to the ring like a run-in. It's crazy. Slides right into the ring and turns to the to the main uh, camera and calls for the bell. So Goldberg and Sting tie up. Goldberg backs Sting into the corner, starts working knees into Sting's abdomen and right hands. We see Goldberg knocking Sting through the ropes to the floor, and he ends up following Sting out onto the floor. We see Goldberg ramming Sting into the announcer's table and then sends Sting into the guardrail. As Sting is starting to stumble from the guardrail back to the ring, Sting finds his back towards the corner post. As Goldberg goes to lunge to the corner post for a clothesline, Sting moves. So Goldberg kind of rams his shoulder and his bicep into the ring post. Both men end up back in the ring. We see Sting uh, dropping an elbow onto a prone Goldberg. He climbs up to the top rope and does his big stinger splash off the top rope for a two count from referee Charles Robinson. We see Sting uncharacteristically do a running spear and spears Goldberg, who then Goldberg himself immediately no-sells it, gets up, and connects with a spinning roundhouse kick to knock Sting down. Sting is now prone in the corner. Goldberg sets up to do a spear onto Sting, whose back is in the corner, but Sting moves out of the way, and Goldberg crashes and burns into the turnbuckle pretty hard. With Goldberg eventually getting up in the turnbuckle, Sting hits a stinger splash. He does it a second time. He does it a third time. And eventually Goldberg drops down. Sting decides to pick up Goldberg and do an Irish whip into the ropes. 
Goldberg ducks a clothesline attempt by Sting. Sting ends up now running and charging against the ropes that Goldberg just rebounded off of. Goldberg does a jumping leapfrog that Sting runs under. Sting then hits the opposite ropes on the other side, and Goldberg turns around immediately from that leapfrog and hits a spear onto Sting and got a really good crowd pop for that sequence. Goldberg calls for the jackhammer, picks Sting up, hits the jackhammer, one, two, three, pinfall victory. And for the announcers who claim that the match was non-title, we see referee Charles Robinson hand Goldberg the WCW championship and the ring announcer announces Goldberg as new WCW champion uh, for winning the main event. Post-match, Goldberg leaves after his celebration. We see Sting in the ring. He gets up from the defeat, and he is now having a conversation with Charles Robinson, discussing the match, discussing the finish. Charles Robinson said, nope, I counted it down, one, two, three. As Charles Robinson turns his back to Sting to walk out of the ring, Sting grabs him from behind and ends up hitting his scorpion death drop to lay out Charles Robinson. And the WWE version it now marks off and goes off the air. So, shenanigans. Post-match, Nitro the next night. The announcers on the pay-per-view claim that this was non-title. Sting goes into the ring and tells J.J. Dillon, who is the acting board director or whatnot for the WCW commission, whatever, that this, you know, it, I, he never agreed for it to be a title match. He said he was only there for a fight. He already had a title match earlier that night with Hogan. And J.J. Dillon says, yep, we absolutely agree with you. However, you are being stripped of the heavyweight title due to your um, putting your hands on referee Charles Robinson and attacking him post-match, putting your hands on the official. So that ends up setting up for the title being held up and the next pay-per-view, which is four weeks from Halloween Havoc. It would have been the World War III pay-per-view, but WCW decided to change and shift and pivot towards a new pay-per-view concept. And this was the uh, the, the WCW Mayhem pay-per-view, which was, a, I believe, basically a spinoff that they had released their own music that I think was called the WCW yep. Mayhem album. So they're they're doing uh, so they're just changing they're changing the away from the World War Three, which would be weird because in the past they've had the world title held up. I think Macho Man won it that one year when the title was held up from the '95 Halloween Havoc, right when the Giant won, and then uh, Macho Man won it. So they end up doing a, a tournament where I believe the semifinals and finals of the World Heavyweight Title Tournament itself, um were played out and eventually uh, Bret Hart won the title at that pay-per-view defeating Chris Benoit in the finals. Now, one of the, so that's basically how they ended up handling everything with the world title from what happens from Halloween Havoc to the next pay-per-view to explain how they got it off of Sting and then eventually it gets to Bret Hart. There's four weeks between Halloween Havoc and the WCW Mayhem pay-per-view. Who left as World Tag Team Champions at Halloween Havoc? Oh, me. Okay. At the next pay-per-view, Stevie Ray is challenging, not for one, but two singles titles. Who is he challenging against? Scott Hall. 
who is the United States and television champion. The United States champion who was just won by Goldberg, who somehow in the next three to four weeks drops the title and it ends up to Scott Hall. And also Scott Hall ends up with the television title that was just won that night as well by Rick Steiner. So within four weeks, all of the championships are now completely flip-flopping and we got two singles titles on one guy on Scott Hall. Just It's just crazy what the direction they were going in. Shenanigans. I, I mean, like I said, I think Russo probably had good ideas. They thought, let's spice it up. Let's get people talking. Let's get people interested. But without someone above him to focus that, it's just slop. No words. You got nothing. Yeah, I got nothing. I got nothing. I mean, I I really want to go back and watch these. I think it'd be a fascinating look. I think it might hurt. Oh, absolutely, but probably would. But it's just something to kind of to kind of see. So I think that's gonna do it for this pay per view, guys. Halloween Havoc, nineteen ninety nine, the penultimate episode in the books. Oh, uh, no top five match, right? I can, no. no top five, and I don't think we're going to talk a lot about it, where it's going to where it's going to finish in the top uh, overall for pay per view. All right, so let's just break down our top five matches. Uh, number five is DDP versus Macho Man from '97. Number four is DDP versus Goldberg from '98. Number three is Hogan versus Flair from '94. <laughs> number two is the Nasty Boys taking on the Steiner Brothers in 1990. And then number one is Rey Mysterio Jr. versus Greddy Guerrero from Halloween Havoc 1997. All right, guys. Halloween Havoc 99. Let's rank them. We'll start at the bottom, work our way to the top. Is it better than 95? Just because of how awful the ending to Hogan Giant was. Yeah, true. Uh, and there were some unique spots on this one. I'll say, yes, it's better than 95. I'll, I'll agree. It's not the worst one I've watched. All right. Is it better than Halloween Havoc 1992? Jake Sting. Coal Miner's Glove. I'm sorry, but that's my cutoff. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm fine with it. Like, uh, there's, there's glimmers on here, but there's no match I would consider. There's, you know, some good sports. Enter- like, we're saying the Goldbrick Sid match is entertaining, but it's not a good match, but it's entertaining and all. Flair's entertaining, but there's not anything wrestling here that's great. If anything, it's confusing and it hurts the brand overall. And it, from sounds of it, it, continue, it got worse as they went along. I'm fine stopping it there. All right, majority rules here. We'll keep it there. I, I, uh, what were you thinking? I don't care. <laughs> no, <all right. laughs> I, you guys could. We could have put it in last. I would have been fine with it. We could put it at fourth. I would be fine with it. Like, it's a weird paper. It really is an interesting show because, like you said earlier, Kevin, there is things that I like on the show. I, I like certain aspects, little threads, you know, kind of like what they're doing with Flair and DDP. Didn't like the match, but I, I kind of like that storyline. The stuff with the filthy animal, animals is really good, I thought. They're throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks, and then the stuff that sticks, they take down the wall anyways. Yeah. Shout out to Berlin. Yeah. So, um, shout out to Ray being thrown through the wall. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so our top three Halloween Havocs number three is 1991. 
Uh, number two is 97, and then our number one Halloween Havoc is 1996. Guys, next week's show, you know what it is. Oh, boy. The series finale of Halloween Havoc. We are watching Halloween Havoc 2000. The future of professional wrestling is here and now. Our main event, Goldberg takes on Chronic in a handicap match. Gosh. Oh. Help me out. Was it a tag title match or anything no, like handic- that? Or? Handicap was- elimination. Oh, okay. Oh. So it's a triple threat, but they didn't call it a triple threat, basically. Um, can I already make a prediction? Yeah. Can I predict? Actually, I'm going to make a request. Okay. All right. Educator, oh, I want to give Kevin the the hot tag right now. You're going to tell him right now what the hot tag is? I'm going to tell him is. what it is. All right. Hold on. Let me take a peek. I want to know because I want to see what the entire card is because I usually don't look at the entire card until I'm there going to sit down and watch it. There is one match that is sticking out in my head as I looked at, at the Wikipedia page for this. And I said, this is what it is. Kevin, we're going to give you a full week to, to write your best notes for this, okay? I'm, I'm purposely not looking. Okay. All right. I see that match. Which match do you think I'm going with? Because this is the last Kevin Hellion's Halloween Havoc breakdown. So it's got to be the best one. So we want to give you time to prepare. Oh, boy. I'm looking at this card. And I am not looking forward to doing the show. <laughs> <laughs> it's a weird oh show. My yeah. Gosh. I mean, should we have him do the David Flair Buff Bagwell first blood DNA match? The first blood DNA match. It was no, one that not I was that one. About. Are you going to have him do Jarrett Sting? Nope. Are you ready? Oh, I know where you're going, Kevin. Number eight. I want you to do the handicap match for the WCW United States Heavyweight Championship. <laughs> yeah, you are. It is Lance Storm and Hacksaw Jim Duggan with Major Guns taking on General Rection. Okay. General Hugh G. Rection. Yeah. No knobs. No. <laughs> well, there's guns, though. Take take extra good notes for that one. Can I just, for the audience out there, we got a three-way dance for the WCW Tag Team titles. We have a hardcore match for the WCW Hardcore title. We have a First Blood DNA match. We have a kickboxing match. We have the WCW United States Heavyweight Championship decided in a, in a handicap match. Um, and then we have a handicap elimination match as our main event. What an event. We are ending on a good one. Halloween Havoc 2000. Very excited. So, if you haven't heard already, guys, after that, we have the Gingerbread House Show, where we are covering, you know, just two bangers in a row, Halloween Havoc 2000, followed by Santa with Muscles. Then you will get our blooper episode, and then beginning in 2021, Saturday night's main event. So, educator, what do you want to say to the people out there? I am very much looking forward to wrapping up this season, having some fun with some unique holiday-themed shows that we're going to be taping between our run-ins, as well as our our Christmas episode here. 
very much looking forward to the Saturday night's main event shows. This was what really originally roped me into following professional wrestling, the shows of 86 and 87. Uh, it was right, right between WrestleMania two, WrestleMania three. These were the shows that just totally got me so interested, enthralled with pro wrestling. Um, always remember just looking at my TV guides every week that my grandparents would get and just looking at Saturday night to see, is it Saturday night live or is it Saturday night's main event? Didn't matter when it was taped months, weeks prior, just loved to stay up super late on a Saturday night and just watch my professional wrestling. Can't wait for these shows. Can't wait to go through and just seeing the progression from the 80, the shows from 86 all the way to like 92. Can't look forward to it, man. I'm, I'm super excited. I'm just excited that I'm old enough that no one can tell me to go to bed. I, I can stay up. I can watch Saturday night's main event. It's not school night. I don't have to go to church in the morning if I don't wanna. No one's bossing me anymore. Um, uh, Kevin. Yeah. Elise is your boss. She oh, usually, baby. She usually goes to bed earlier than I do, though. All right, I just want to thank everyone out there in podcast land. You can follow me always at Maddie Treats on Twitter. Um, of course, I'm on different retro network sites and podcasts. Um, I am on the Bracket Madness for the best Christmas movies of all time. Thanks to the Retro Network. That was a lot of fun, uh, you know, recording that. Of course, get ready for all of our special events coming up. And as always, in the show notes, click the link for fun.com. Save yourself 15% off. Get those gifts in because Christmas is like two weeks away, I think. It depends on when you're listening to this. I think it's two weeks away. I'm not sure. All I know is Kevin Hellions. Why don't you take us home tonight? All right. I would like to thank my host for another good show here. I'd like to thank Retro Network for hosting us. I'd like to thank WWE Network for the content. I would like to not thank Vince Russo because this was awful. Thank you to Richard Reader and Jason Gross for our logos. You can follow us across the internet at TRN House Show. You can follow Matt at Made Treats. You can follow me at Mass Library. MassLibrary.com is the home blog. And I just want to say Treats was pointing out other things on the Retro Network. But no matter what the powers that be at the Retro Network say, we will not lay down for anyone. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.